This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I'm pretty sure Chris Bojalian does not need an introduction. <laughs> 23 books in, and I was telling Chris before we started recording that I did a little fun, goofy thing because I had an Excel spreadsheet and I just sort of wanted to answer the question for myself. So 23 books with Knopp Doubleday. Average, you know, 331 pages per book, let's call it. 23 books. And, you know, 300 pages is roughly what, Chris? 90,000 words, right? So, so 90 and 100,000, okay. yeah. yeah. So basic math, even if we go 90,000, that's 2.3 million words, Chris. <laughs> and and 1.1 million additional words in journalism, given that I was a columnist for nearly a quarter century. Right. It's a lot. It's a lot. And you've always said you never wanted to write the same book twice, and you haven't. The Lioness is out now. It's very cool. It's 1964. It's Safari. It's Hollywood. We will get there in a second. But yeah, you really haven't written the same book twice ever and 23 books in. Thanks. And also, Miwa, thank you so much for having me on the show. And thank you so much for all you do <laughs> to make the world a better place, celebrating what words and reading and books can mean to the soul. You have done so much for so many readers, for so many writers, and speaking selfishly. For me as a reader, <laughs> when I go into a Barnes & Noble, and for me as a writer, thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. I mean, can you actually believe they pay me to do this? It's really fun. <laughs> I can't believe they pay me to write. Right? And this is, I want to talk about the fun piece because you're not always writing. I mean, you're not a comedic writer for the most part. Let's, let's go there. But you do have a really good time as you're constructing these stories and discovering these characters and finding out where they take you because you're kind of a pantser as you write, aren't you? I'm stealing a phrase from David Levithan, but you're not sitting down with an outline to start these stories, are you? No, I have no idea where my mm -hmm. books are going. I depend on my characters to take me by the hand and lead me through the dark of the story. I begin with the vaguest mm -hmm. premises. Functional alcoholic flight attendant wakes up next to a dead body far from home. Hollywood's biggest star finally gets married and decides to bring her entourage into the Serengeti on a honeymoon. Or Puritan woman is in an abusive, horrific marriage and decides, I've had enough. Mm -hmm. And that's all I know when I start. We are going to have a long conversation about the women, but you start with the idea, you start with the concept. When does the voice come in? I mean, is the voice part of that concept or are you just sitting down and writing until you know it when you hear it? Usually I have to know two things to start. Mm -hmm. The premise and the voice. Okay. Is this a very traditional third-person omniscient novel? Is it a third-person subjective novel? Mm -hmm. Or is it first-person? Do I have the sort of idiosyncratic narrator that I really get, that mm -hmm. I hear her or his or their voice in my head. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I do. With Midwives, I did. I knew instantly that this was a first-person novel by a midwife's daughter, and, and I knew the first sentence. 
mm-hmm. whenever I needed to find her voice, I'd go back to that first sentence. Okay, so 23 books, three of which we're going to leave to the sands of time. <laughs> Your 10,000 hours. Some of them deeply buried <laughs> under the sands of time. I've written the single worst first novel ever published bar none. I've written some really terrible books. Okay, but here's the thing. As as an ad guy making the transition, you really were, you were practicing. Your practice runs happened to get published. <laughs> Unfortunately for some readers, yes. But here's the thing. So, you know, let's look at Water Witches in Vermont. That was sort of, let's use that as the starting point. And yes, I included those other three novels in the uh, 2.3 million words because you still did write them. <laughs> I did, yeah. Apprentice fiction. Right, okay. But the reason I'm bringing up Water Witches and starting there is you really see the bones of a lot of your work. Not all of your work, but a lot of your work. There's the family conflict. There's the Vermont setting, which occasionally you've scooted out into New Hampshire and New York and whatnot. But really, Vermont is as much a character in a lot of your work as the people themselves. So you've in the past talked about, too, how Vermont helped you find your voice as a writer. So let's Let's get everyone situated in Vermont with you before we start wandering the globe. There's a great Ralph Ellison quote. Mm -hmm. If you don't know where you are, you don't know who you are. So Vermont is a character. Wherever my books are set, I hope Mm -hmm. the geography is a character. Right. In The Lioness, the Serengeti in Hollywood are characters. In The Red Lotus, Vietnam and New York City Mm -hmm. are characters. So Vermont, I I grew up outside of New York City in every dysfunctional John Cheeverisk suburb there is, including Miami, Florida, which when I was a kid was you know a suburb of New York City. Yeah, yeah. And then when my wife and I were really young, mm-hmm. we moved to Vermont, and I discovered what it was like to be the dumbest human being in the village. <laughs> I mean, I was the ultimate idiot transplant in Vermont, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't have gotten through our first winter right. were it not for the kindness of neighbors. So in a book like Water Witches, I found my voice for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. I found my voice because I understood that one of the things a writer is, mm-hmm. is an observer. We're really watching the world around us and trying to share it with our readers. And as the the dumbest person in the village of Lincoln, Vermont, me. Whether you're writing historical fiction or contemporary stories, you do a ton of research. And it seems like it's always like you pick up a thread and you're like, hmm, is this personally interesting to me? So you really are this kind of wild generalist who's just really looking for a story, right? Research is so much fun. Mm -hmm. One of the great gifts of being a novelist is asking people I don't know questions that are none of my business. (laughs) And one of the things I found is that when you are talking to someone about something they love or what they do for a living, they are really forthcoming because they're sharing their love. Mm -hmm. So when I was writing The Lioness, I was researching fundamentally two things, Mm -hmm. the Serengeti and safaris and old Hollywood. And that was really fun for me. I mean, I 
I love the, getting to learn things that are weird. <laughs> I mean, I had the best time talking to my two guides in the Serengeti mm-hmm. about all the ways there are to die <laughs> on a safari and all of the things that tourists do that are stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, a safari mm-hmm. is perfectly safe if you listen to your guides. Right. It's not if you don't. When I was writing the flight attendant, I had the best time talking to flight attendants. Mm-hmm. Every flight attendant can tell you a story that will leave you howling with laughter, ranging from what do you really do with a dead body at 35,000 feet when you are over the Atlantic Ocean and there's no place to put the corpse. Mm -hmm. When I was researching the Red Lotus, every ER doctor, and ER doctors are amazing, would tell me stories that were really funny and really, really interesting and surprising. I remember talking to one ER doctor in New York City about what it's like on a weekend. I was really surprised when she said, oh man, weekends are crazy. You get so many people who've tripped over their pets. You get so many people who've cut off a finger slicing a bagel. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that was the case. I assumed, you know, there might be a few more car crashes or things like that, but... Oh, wow. They get that. And of course, every ER doctor has on on his, her, their phone, a photograph of an x-ray of something that someone has inserted into a part of the body where it didn't belong. I mean, I can't, I mean, literally every ER doctor would say, okay, I'm about to show you an x-ray and you're to tell me what you are seeing in this image. Have you ever guessed on the first try? Have you ever gotten it right? I never got it right. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I really can't. But you also had a ghost story that started with a a door in your own basement, but took you so far as you're being strapped underwater so you could write about landing a plane on a river. The Night Strangers is is a ghost story about Mm -hmm. the pilot who isn't Sully Sullenberger, who has to ditch his plane in Lake Champlain. And unlike Sully, it pinwheels and sinks. And most of the passengers die, but he survives. And he's haunted by his fallibility, the Mm -hmm. fact that he's human and he couldn't do what Sully Sullenberger did. And I wanted to know what it's like Mm -hmm. to be in a plane underwater and getting out. So I remembered that great movie, An Officer and a Gentleman, when Mm -hmm. Richard Gere goes into the dunk tank. And in An Officer and a Gentleman, the dunk tank is pretty simple. Mm -hmm. It's an egg that you can crawl inside and it's dumped into a swimming pool. Now the dunk tank is way cooler. Um, Imagine a minivan Mm -hmm. suspended over a 100,000 gallon tank and this minivan pod can be converted into 54 different fixed wing or rotary aircraft. And I did four dumps into the dunk tank one day. And the best one was the last one. Okay. Because at this point, you know, they trained me enough. And because I want to be the pilot, mm-hmm. they recreate the pod to be a 70 seat Embraer. And they mm-hmm. put me behind the yoke on the flight deck with a five-point shoulder harness, Mm -hmm. and they 
drop me into the tank, turn it upside down, and I'm given 28 seconds to push away the yoke, get out of the five-point shoulder harness, open the door into the passenger cabin, open the door at the front of the passenger mm-hmm. cabin, and swim to the surface. And I have two memories of this mm-hmm. when, I sw- when, I, when I escaped. The first was, that was the most fun I've ever had. <laughs> and secondly, I've now officially lost my mind. Yeah. Who does this? But, but it was really helpful mm-hmm. because there's so many things I'd never thought about until I did it. How much my shoes weighed, how dark it is underwater, um, how everything is upside down and you need to think upside down. You do bounce sort of around and your narrators are who they need to be in first person, third person. But the women, the women, we need to talk about the women because you are very good at writing in women's voices. And uh, people may notice that you're a dude. (laughs) So let's talk about this for a second. You are a dude. So really, though. You're starting with the voice. You're starting with the idea. You have both of these pieces of the story. And then where do we go from there? When people talk about my, my women narrators, they often go right back to, to midwives. Mm-hmm. And, and the first sentence of that book is this. I used the word vulva as a child. The way some kids said butt or penis or puke. It wasn't a swear exactly, but I knew it had an edge to it that could stop adults cold in their tracks. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget the moment that I heard that sentence in my head. Mm -hmm. I had this idea, the premise, Mm -hmm. for a book about a midwife. And when I had the premise, it was this. Daughter of a hippie midwife becomes a... OBGYN, and I thought it was going to be a gently comic novel mm-hmm. about a mother who's a hippie and a daughter who's a really buttoned up OBGYN. So now my daughter's about a, a year old, and I've interviewed at this point easily 15 or 20 midwives and OBGYNs and nurse midwives. And I'm giving my daughter a bottle. And it's one of those moments at the mm-hmm. end of the day when, you know, you've got 15, 18 pounds in your arms that you love more madly than you ever thought you could love anyone or anything. And I remembered a story mm-hmm. that a friend of mine had told me about her four-year-old goddaughter who had just come home from preschool entranced by the word vulva. She knew this was a perfectly fine word, but every time she said it, her mom and dad would sweat buckets. And so she was saying it all the time. Right. And that sentence came into my head. Mm-hmm. So I, um, as soon as my daughter was asleep, I placed her in her crib. And it sounded to me like a midwife's daughter. Mm-hmm. So I called up a midwife's daughter I knew. Um Sure, her name is Erin Warnock. She's the daughter of Carol Gibson Warnock, who is a midwife who is just a gem, just a treasure, and, and you know, helped me so much writing the book Midwives. And I called up Erin, who at the time was at the University of Vermont. And I said to her, Erin, when you were a, a little girl, 
Mm-hmm. Did you have a greater comfort level with the anatomic terrain than your peers? And without missing a beat, she said, yeah, I was always the most popular kid in the sandbox. And so I decided to give myself the license to fail mm-hmm. and to write across gender, to write in the voice of a midwife's daughter. And if the book isn't working, fine. Mm-hmm. We'll write it from the perspective of the midwife's husband, from some other male character. Mm-hmm. But I loved it. It was so emancipating to not be me, to not be, you know, at the time, this 30-something dude. Uh, and, and I loved it. And I think my best books, my best characters, whether it's first person or third person, are women. You know, there's there's this part of me that feels a lot like Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie <laughs> at the end, you know, when he's talking to Jessica Lane mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's saying to her, trying a rapprochement that, um, you know, I was a better man with you when I was a woman. Mm-hmm. But you did also change tone while you were writing Midwives. As you mentioned a second ago, you said, well, I thought I was writing a comic sort of coming of age. And it really was not going to work that way. How often has that happened to you where you realized you've got a great thread, but, oh, it's going to zig when you thought it was going to zag? Almost every book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Midwives took a hard left turn when my mom was diagnosed with cancer right. and it was clear she was going to die. And um, my family does many things well, but but we suck when it comes to death. Um, and And the book went into this really dark place. And mm-hmm. when I continued to interview midwives, suddenly I was asking them this question. Have you ever had a baby die? Right. And most of them had, because, you know, babies die, people die. And then it got even darker. And I asked a midwife, have you ever had a mom die? And almost none had. Mm-hmm. But I would press the issue. I would say, but if you did, it's a home birth. You're not at a hospital. Mm-hmm. What would you do? And they thought I was pretty gruesome. Mm-hmm. They thought I was pretty dark. But then one midwife said to me, what could you do? I get the sharpest knife in the house. And I said, and perform what, a C-section? Mm-hmm. She said, yeah, we don't carry scalpels. Right. We're midwives, not surgeons. And that line, I get the sharpest knife in the house stayed with me and that's when the book took its ultimate zag and i knew right. where it was going and you know the lioness was really really similar in one way in that it took a lot of changes and zigged and zagged but it was different in another way how so when i began the lioness i began it knowing it was going to be sort of this the poisonwood Bible meets and then there were none. <laughs> um, um, or, you know, after I'd read this book later on, I realized, you know, it's actually, um, to quote Jordy's book club, mm-hmm. Evelyn Hugo meets Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was going to create this ensemble where a lot of people were going to die. The question is, is who? Right. Where it zagged and changed was when I had this ensemble cast in the beginning 
a lot of the people who I thought would live died. Right. And some of the people I were sure were going to die lived. Uh, there were a couple of characters where I thought, oh, yeah, there's no way. There's no way. And then they show up at the end. It was delightful because I like being surprised that way. But I do. I do, Katie, too. I do, Katie too. Katie and Carmen. They're awesome, those women, Katie and Carmen. They're fabulous. <laughs> oh, I mean, my favorite characters in the book mm-hmm. are by far Carmen, yep. Reggie, Terrence, mm-hmm. and Katie. Yep. And, you know, there's so many things that I wanted to do in The Lioness that when I started the book, I didn't know we're even going to be on my wish list. I mean, I knew I was going to be exploring old Hollywood. I knew it was going to be a thriller. I knew it was going to be about wildlife. Um, But I had no idea how much it would be about colonialism. I had no idea how much it was going to be about race relations. But 1964, there was, it wasn't just America that was changing. There was a lot happening around the globe. Now, you spent time on safari doing your homework and figuring so out lucky. what was next. Right. But you were traveling. It was the start of the pandemic, right? Just as things were really starting to shut down, you were in the Serengeti. Do I have that No, right? not, not okay. precisely, no. Okay. What happened was this. Um, I was in New York City in August mm-hmm. of 2019 because we were workshopping the stage play of Midwives. Right. And it went to a matinee. Okay. And I emerged into this cobalt sky and I, you know, it's hot and I just been in an air conditioned mm-hmm. theater and I was, I just been transported really far from New York city in this movie. And I thought to myself, my God, I love movies. Mm-hmm. Why have I never written a Hollywood novel? And so I decided I would, and I've never written a book set in the 1960s or the 1970s when I was a boy. And I'm from an era when so many people my age or a little older, the first movies they, movie they ever saw was Mary Poppins, Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, Dancing Penguins. Mm-hmm. Not me. First movie I ever saw was <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde. Because my parents clearly had no filter and were going to mm-hmm. take me to whatever movie they wanted to see. So the, my principal image and memory of the first movie I ever saw were Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway being machine gunned in the Bonnie and Clyde death car. So I decided the book was going to be set in the 1960s because, as you said so eloquently a moment ago, it's an era of great cultural transformation everywhere. And when I was thinking about the Cold War, I thought about the proxy wars in East Africa. And wouldn't it be interesting to take a bunch of Hollywood people, actors who pretend that's what they do they pretend and and producers and agents and and publicists (laughs) and put them absolutely out of their element on a safari and i figured you know we'll go in 2020 right but then my wife and i got lucky and there was a cancellation and we Uh, were able to go in october of 2019 okay and thank goodness we did because i mean You know, this book quite literally saved my life in 2020. Um, The writing of it? The researching of it? The writing of it. I mean, okay, okay, for those of you who are are watching and listening, some of you are saying, oh, he just did a lioness book tour. He's got laryngitis. No, 
this is my new voice. Thank you, COVID. Mm-hmm. I got mm-hmm. COVID in March of 2020. Uh, and this is my new voice. Mm-hmm. But in March of 2020, here's what happened. I lost my voice completely. Mm. You know, we, we didn't just cancel the Red Lotus book tour because the world shut down. I had a book, you know, published March 17, 2020. I remember. Um, yeah. My wife is a fine artist. Mm-hmm. And her galleries were going out of business. Right. The biggest solo show she had scheduled in years was canceled. My daughter is a young actor, and she was booked through all of 2020, and it all went away. Right. And while all of us were learning to Zoom, we were FaceTiming and talking on the phone, I couldn't even speak. And so all I did was walk my dog, mm-hmm. hang out with my wife, in this weird world where we're writing notes to each other and wondering whether we're both going to learn ASL for the first eight weeks, my daughter was with us Mm -hmm. and I would do these weird virtual events and book clubs where I wouldn't speak. And my daughter would be my voice because, you know, she knows my work so well. She's narrated at least five or six of my audio books. And, and I wrote this book and it's what, I mean, I'm just going to read you the dedication because it really gives you a sense of what my yeah. headspace was when the world is unraveling. And, and all of these ER doctors I've interviewed for the Red Lotus and I are emailing and texting mm-hmm. from New York City and Los Angeles about the trauma that they are experiencing and witnessing and how helpless they feel. For my pod, literal and metaphoric from 2020, the year that Satan spawned and the first half of 2021, when I was hanging on by my fingernails, you gave me your hand. You are my safari. I mean, I was really, really broken. And books do save us. I mean, I am that person. I absolutely believe that there is a book for every reader and the folks out there who are saying, I don't read, it's not fun. I, it was spoiled for me in school. No, you just haven't found the thing that I mean, is going to make you so, swing. I was so thrilled and so grateful when I'm one of the, the 2021 mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble book club picks was our country friends by Gary Steingart because a, the book is fantastic. Isn't it though? It's so it good. <laughs> I mean, it is so good. Gary is so smart. Mm-hmm. And he's so funny. We need to be writing about the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, and, and that was among the very first books to come out. And it was just, just mm-hmm. you know, so important. Jody Pico's Wish You Were Here mm-hmm. is really one of those books that I think is for her a legacy book. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it really gets at, in some ways, the notion that, A, the world is unraveling. B, we are all in quarantine. Mm-hmm. And see, we desperately need books when we can't get out right. to help us get out. We talk what? all about books make us empathetic. They make us better people. And my God, Barnes and Noble and books literally were the angels that helped save us in 2020 and 2021. Well, there are a lot of bookstores that helped a lot of folks. We can't take all yep. of the credit. But... What are your legacy books? 
I mean, obviously, Midwives is in there. Obviously, well, we think the double bind is in there. <laughs> but Hour of the Witch, Red Lotus, The Flight Attendant, The Lioness. I think we do need to add, though, Sandcastle Girls. That feels really important. I mean, that's what I was going to add about the Armenian yeah. genocide for a minute. I, once again, we're back to not light, not fluffy, but a love story that's really important and about a moment in world history that not everyone knows the way we might hope. I'm glad you added the Sandcastle Girls. That's the one I would have added mm-hmm. to that litany. I'm a grandson of two survivors of the Armenian Genocide, the Ottoman Empire's systematic annihilation of 1.5 million Armenians, 300,000 Assyrians, and countless Greeks under the cover of the First World War. And yet, it isn't a genocide that, until recently, Mm -hmm. was known. It's known more now because of the centennial of the start of the genocide in 2015, because finally... The United States formally called it a genocide Mm -hmm. and recognized it as a genocide, but it's still not well known. And when I wrote the book and it was published in 2012, I wasn't writing it for Armenians because we know the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact is three out of every four Armenians were executed, Mm -hmm. died. In the Armenian genocide, there are 10 million Armenians in the world today. Most of us are descendants of the final 500,000 who were left alive in the Ottoman Empire. And I mean, to this day, I don't think a week goes by when I don't hear from a book group saying, would you join us? Or we just read the Sandcastle Girls. We are all educated readers and we knew nothing about the Mm -hmm. Armenian genocide until we read your novel. And that's part of the point I wanted to make. And we were talking about empathy just a second ago. And yes, I mean, reading absolutely builds your empathy muscle, without a doubt. But you are covering a lot of ground in these books. You're covering a lot of different emotional states. Despair is something that comes up frequently in your stories. I mean, and that's the nature of fiction, right? I mean, you have to see people change. You've got to raise the stakes for them to really have to do what the story needs them to do in a way, right? I mean, you're the one who's driving the story. Yeah, I think that's right. It is right. When I was writing The Flight Attendant, I wasn't writing in my mind a page turner. Right. Or a thriller. I thought I was writing a character study of two deeply damaged women. Mm-hmm. A flight attendant who's a functional alcoholic and an assassin who's the daughter of a Russian oligarch and has so much blood on her hands and is wondering if she has it in her to kill this flight attendant who has did nothing wrong except for pick up the wrong guy on the wrong flight and um, have one too many drinks in a hotel. Despair was part of who Cassie Bowden is. Mm-hmm. You know, despair is who part of Miranda Orlov is. I mean, I mean, one of the things I love about the Flight Attendant TV series is you get to see Kaylee Cuoco's acting chops. <laughs> you see that you know, she's a really, really good dramatic actor. And to go back to that word despair. Right. In season one and season two, 
because Kaylee's a really good actor, you feel Cassie's despair and her demons. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I hope my books aren't a black hole of dread and despair where you never are going to see the sunlight, but I'm certainly never going to draw the curtain on unhappiness. You know, in Midwives, we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. there's a reason mm-hmm. that you see the bedroom cesarean right. that I don't draw the curtain. In The Lioness, you <laughs> see a lot. <laughs> when, when, you know, when the leopards, mm-hmm. when the hyenas, when the lions, when the snakes, when the trees are mm. going to kill you. That's right. the thing that, you know, the guides taught me is there are just a million ways to die in the Serengeti. And right. I was never going to draw the curtain on any of it. Story is the thing that connects us at whatever level. It connects your characters. It connects readers to you and your characters. Story is the thing that makes your work sing on the page. And I alluded to this early on, that there have been plenty of words that you've discarded, plenty of pages you've discarded, plenty of projects you've discarded. But I want to talk about the process for creating these stories, because sometimes you're in, you know, 1950s Italy and you're chasing a serial killer. And sometimes you're in 1915 and the Armenian genocide. And you also did a World War II novel that's set in Germany and Poland as the Third Reich is falling, which not light material, but you never lose sight of your characters. You never lose sight of your story. But can we talk about the process for creating a world like that? Well, let's, let's step out of the contemporary for a second. Let's really look at the serious historicals that you did. There are two kinds of historical fiction, mm-hmm. at least two. There's historical fiction that is close enough to the present where you can mm-hmm. interview people who were there. Mm-hmm. For a book like Skeletons at the Feast, I was able to interview Holocaust survivors and Prussians who were trying to stay ahead of the Soviet army in 1945. Mm-hmm. I was able to talk to them about what they saw, what they experienced, what it was like. Then there's the kind of historical fiction like Hour of the Witch, which is said in 1662. If I'm talking to people who are there, I'm dead and something has gone horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. So instead it's all secondary sources. You're reading the poetry of Anne Bradstreet. You are um, interviewing experts on Puritan litigation, such as Elkin Van Roth. I like both. I am thrilled to do a deep dive into the secondary sources, mm-hmm. you know, and read. I mean, the great thing about the Puritans is they were avid diarists. They chronicled everything because they spent every waking moment trying to decide am I saved or damned? That was literally the principal concern they had. It wasn't just finding beer. Though beer was really important to them. I mean, they drank like it was spring break in Miami. But when you're dealing with the primary sources, you know, the human beings, that's where you get these unbelievable golden nuggets mm-hmm. that surprise you. And so when I was writing The Light in the Ruins, which, you know, as you said, is set in Italy in the 1950s or the 1940s, mm-hmm. or Skeletons at the Feast, which is set in the Eastern Front in 1944, 1945, 
I would be be deeply moved, utterly horrified in the space of five minutes of conversation by the things people would tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sandcastle Girls was a little bit like that too. Right. Most survivors of the Armenian genocide um, were dead by 2010 or 2011, but their children were alive. Right. I'm alive, you know, grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And the stories that parents told their children and the children's trauma was present. Um, and that's really, really important to get that trauma down in paper. We know that trauma is transmitted genetically. At least I believe that from what I've read, that mm-hmm. trauma is in our genes. And when you're writing historical fiction, the kind that, that I write, mm-hmm. there will be blood and there will be trauma. You've done three books in three years. Do I have that right? See it? Red Lotus went straight into Hour of the Witch, went into The Lioness. That's a lot. Even with a pandemic, that's that's a lot. But what's next? The Princess of Las Vegas. And Las Vegas is a character. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you that I thought the book was pretty much done in February. But I was ahead of the zeitgeist. Okay. And it's going to have to change. Because the basic premise is about Russian oligarchs laundering money at a Las Vegas casino that now accepts crypto. All of a sudden, Russian oligarchs aren't funny. No. It's just frightening. Yeah. Secondly, the sanctions we had in place previously are very different than the sanctions we have now. And finally, I have no idea what in holy heck crypto is going to be a year from now and whether any casino will want anything to do with crypto. So the Princess of Las Vegas is rolling on, but it's changing. And it's a good (laughs) thing that I don't give a darn about outlines or, you know, big dry erase boards because... If I did, I'd be pulling out my hair. At this point, it's just having fun with um, a very particular kind of tribute impersonator in Las Vegas who's not Elvis. Oh, I think there's a lot to look forward to. <laughs> this is just, it sounds wild in all of the best ways. Chris Bojalian, thank you so much. Linus is out in hardcover. Hour of the Witch is one of 22 paperbacks with Chris's name on them that you can pick up right now. <laughs> and the Princess of Las Vegas will grace us when she does. And when she be does, exciting. yes. <laughs> thank you so Miwa, much. Miwa, thank you. You're the best. I had so much fun. I loved your questions. And thank you for celebrating what words and reading in books can mean to the soul. I Listen, I love doing what I do. <laughs> Thanks again. Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books for you. Today is a special episode since we're covering a retrospective of the incredible Chris Bojalian. We decided to just choose our two favorites. Um, I'm Mark, 
coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati. I'm joined by my favorite book buddy, Becky. Hello, Becky. Hey, Mark. Hi, everybody. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in with my favorite book by Mr. Bojalian, and it is The Double Bind. Uh, this is such a fantastic book. Um, it's twisty. It's got this quiet suspense attached to it. Uh, but it's got the hefty share of emotional weight that I would expect from this author. Uh, you follow the main character, Laurel, who uh, is kind of reeling from um, a trauma that occurred back in college when she was assaulted. And she is holding on to that and it's affecting kind of her day to day. But uh, she is currently working at a homeless shelter where she meets. Mr. Bobby Crocker, um, an elderly gentleman who is struggling with mental illness um, and talks a lot about his past as a famous photographer for celebrities and musicians. Um, not, as, not very easy to believe, uh, considering his state of mind usually, but when Laurel comes across a uh, box of photos and negatives, she really dives into an investigation of his past. and what happened to this man who was rubbing elbows with some of the most fa famous people in his era to a man living on the streets. Um, and what follows is not only an investigation into his life, but how that parallels some things that she's going through as well. And the ways that these intertwine are staggering and incredible. I can't say too much more, but it is such a fantastic book and a great way to build up that empathy muscle that I have talked about in the past. Um, everybody in the world has a story. And despite present circumstances, those stories are attached to you in profound ways. So it just this book allows you to remember that everybody has stuff going on. And um, maybe allows somebody to think a little extra hard or, or shift their perspective just slightly. Um, this is an incredible book. Please, please, please pick up the double bind. Becky, you have one for us. I do. Um, so I, my current favorite is actually his newest book. It is called The Lioness. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Oh, my goodness, this book. Uh, so good. It just came out in May. Um, and so I understand. It is in hardcover still. If you want to wait and get it when it comes out in paperback, I'll totally understand. But you need to read it. Don't wait. No. It's so good. <laughs> um, but it, it's uh, it's fantastic. And it's already been optioned for a limited series. So I'm really looking forward to seeing a screen screen adaptation because it really gives kind of death on the Nile vibes. Mm -hmm. So um, basically it follows a 1960s Hollywood group of stars who go on an African safari. Um, and basically it's a, it's a photo safari. So basically what that means is they're glamping to the max. They're going to the Serengeti and, you know, getting great pictures with, you know, incredible wildlife and animals maybe in the background and definitely trusting their guides with everything. But then, you know, when when the cameras aren't rolling, then they are uh, enjoying, wow, like, uh, you know, chilled gin and tonics back at, you know, oh. at camp. And it's all very, How you nice. know, exactly. And I'm just like, I you know, read about the idea of, of a, it's a kerosene uh, powered ice maker. Oh, and I'm like, 
sure. I, I are those is, is that a thing? I, I would I want one now. I know. I I'm <laughs> I'm not a big, you know, roughing it kind of camper. I'm more of a glamper <laughs> myself. So this sounded amazing. Anyway, um, but so anyway, this uh, it follows Katie Barstow. She is the it girl of the 60s. She just gets married, so this is her honeymoon vacation, basically, and she brings her whole entourage, her husband, her brother and his wife, uh, her publicist, her some of her co-stars, and their significant others. And it's this group of like 20 people that go on the safari. Well, then things go wrong. About four days in, they are kidnapped by um, Russian mercenaries. And then it becomes a whole question of... Um, do you stay with your kidnappers and just trust that hopefully you're going to make it to the next day? Or do you take your chances to try to escape? And then who knows what you're going to do in the, you know, Serengeti without your guide, because you're a Hollywood star and you don't know that much about, you know, survival. So um, it's an incredible book because it gives you basically you get to see every um, every character. Um, each chapter goes to a different character, so you're getting to see why they came, uh, kind of a little bit of their background, and also what they thought they were going to be getting into, along with what actually occurs. Um, it is, yeah, it's twisty, turny, and um, and really just such a ride. So um, I highly recommend The uh, Lioness when you get a chance. <laughs> oh, such a good oh. pick. Yeah, I think that I, I can't really tell if I would just deal with Russian mercenaries or try to survive without a kerosene powered ice maker. Well, I don't even know about the kerosene powered ice maker. I think I would just need the guy to tell me, is that tree poisonous or not? Or is it? (laughs) Fair. Oh, fantastic. Um, So thank you everybody for listening and watching today. I hope you loved this episode and are racing to your stores to pick up anything by Chris Bajalian. All of them are fantastic. Oh, he's so, so good. <laughs> um, please make sure to support us with a rating and subscribe to Port Over so you mar- never miss an episode. I am Mark and this is Becky. <laughs> uh, we're here from our home store in Cincinnati. You can follow us at BN Westchester. Thank you again so much. Happy reading, everybody, and enjoy the day. Bye. Bye. Pour It Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.